You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. You can open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. And as you are turning there this morning, I want to ask you a question, a little bit of a soul-searching, heart-searching question. Um, Do you tend to see the Christian life as one primarily of extending blessing or one as primarily of receiving blessing? Do Do you tend to see the Christian life as primarily of extending blessing or receiving blessing? Uh, and, and I know some of you will be tempted to kind of like answer that question with like the right answer. That's not what I, I'm not looking for the right answer. I'm asking you to look at your heart and say, if I'm going to favor one side of that spectrum or another, if I'm going to err on one side or another, if you will, uh, which side is it going to be? So some of you are going to kind of favor the extend a blessing side. Okay. And um, you're always out there working hard for Jesus serving others, caring for whatever needs that you can. Like, uh, don't you agree? Like, aren't those people great to have in your life, right? Like, like when you see that person, you're so thankful for them. And I'm so thankful for those types of people. Uh, But a lot of times, those are the very same people that aren't always great at receiving a blessing, are they? Like, um, have you ever met or been this person? They, They love to bless others, but they very rarely will let others bless them. In fact, often uh, they're, they're very kind to others, that, but they're very hard on themselves. And, and, and sometimes they aren't great at hearing how the Lord loves them and cares for them, regardless of their performance for Him. Uh, sometimes they aren't always great at taking a break and, and just sitting at the feet of Jesus and, and accepting and receiving His blessing and, and being blessed by Him. So, so maybe you're on that extend a blessing side, where that, that's, that's the side that you favor the most. Uh, may, maybe you're uh, uh, on the other side, on, on the receive a blessing side, right? And, and um, you love to come to church, or, or maybe to your gospel community, to get fed out of the word. You, re- you really feel cared for when somebody picks up the phone and calls you to see how you're doing. You're quick to point out the grace that you found in Christ and the many blessings that you've received in Him. And you're so thankful for those things. And hear me correctly, like that is great. Like There's nothing wrong with anything that I just mentioned, right? Some of you uh, extended blessing people are like, yeah, there is. No, no there's not. <laughs> those are good and necessary things. However, if you're a person who tends to be on that receive a blessing side, sometimes you can be tempted to think that that is all that there is to the Christian life. Like you can attend countless Bible studies or listen to countless sermons to get fed, but then never turn around and feed others. Or you can wait for somebody to pick up the phone to call you, but then never pick up the phone to call someone else. Or you can sometimes try to use the grace of Christ as an excuse to to not grow as a witness for Christ or or to not grow in in, in doing good works in His power. And the truth is that the Christian life is not just about extending a blessing and it's, it's not just about receiving a blessing, it's about both, right? And of course, that's the right answer that a lot of us knew. Uh, but we, we need to have the picture look a little bit more like this one on the screen. 
We need to receive the blessings of Jesus Christ, receive the grace that He's given us, and then respond to Him in worship in order to then be able to extend the blessings of Christ to the people around us. And, and if we have received the blessings of Christ, we must extend His blessings to the people around us. God has left us in this world in order that we might bless the world with the hope that we have found in Jesus Christ. And so, as a church, we've been going through this series in the book of 1 Peter. We love to preach book by book, verse by verse, passage by passage. That's one of our favorite ways to do it. And, and Peter, I'll remind you, is writing to churches that are all over the Roman Empire, that are scattered all about the Roman Empire uh, during a time when persecution wasn't quite at its hottest point yet, but it was starting to get there. In just a couple years, it was going to be a, a, a pretty intense time for believers and Peter is reminding these churches that they have been blessed with the incredible hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That He has changed them from the inside out. Because of their faith, God is preparing them for a heavenly inheritance in which they're going to enjoy Him forever. But for now, they are living amidst earthly society as strangers and aliens. Uh, that heaven is their home, and so they're aliens here. It's like a strange place to them. Peter's then been talking to them about how the hope of eternity changes their lives on earth. That's our whole goal as a church in studying this series in this book of 1 Peter, that the hope of eternity would change our lives on earth. And Peter has shown them how heavenly hope causes holy lives. He's shown them how hope changes their relationship to earthly governments. And how hope changes their relationships in their workplaces. And how hope changes their relationships in their marriages. And so today, uh, Peter is really wrapping up that section now. He's summarizing that section. So if you missed it, you're, you're in good shape because we're just going to kind of hit some of the themes that we've already been hitting. And uh, he wants the believers to understand the relationship between the blessing of the hope that they have in Christ and their responsibility to bless a hostile world. So here's the big idea that we're chasing after today. Uh, bless a hostile world with the blessing of the hope you have in Christ. Bless a hostile world with the blessing of the hope you have in Christ. We just don't, we don't want to hear that from me. We want to hear that from God this morning. And so look in your Bibles at 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Peter writes, uh, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, if they, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? 
But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Alright, we're going into some deep waters today, but uh, let's not get ahead of ourselves, alright? We're here to bless a hostile world with the blessing of the hope that we have in Christ. Today we want to see four blessings from this text, four blessings to bless a hostile world. Four blessings that we've received that we need to turn around and use to be a blessing in the hostile world. Uh, Four things that, that Christ has given us to make known His greatness in the locations to which He has called us. Think about wherever He's placed you, whatever address you have, whatever workplace you have, wherever it is, these are the things that He has given the believer to be a blessing there. And The first blessing is this, uh, peace in our church. Peace in our church. If we are going to be a blessing in a hostile world, we are going to need the church to be a place of refuge and peace. That's a blessing that God wants to equip us with as we seek Christ's purposes together. So let's see what that looks like. Uh, Look in verse 8. Peter says, Finally, all of you... So, So no one's left out of this pursuit, right? All of you means all of you. And remember, Peter's just addressed a few specific groups of people within the church. He's addressed servants, he's addressed wives, he's addressed husbands. And so now he's kind of like calling them all back together. And just in case any of the singles fell asleep as the last seven verses of his letter were being read to the church, he's like, hey, get your attention here, back here now, okay, everybody in. I I think I need some of those things in my sermons a little bit more. Like, Like, finally, all of you, come on, everybody, come on, come back, come on back. Do I have your attention? Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So when I see peace in our church, the biblical idea of peace is uh, everything being in proper relationship to everything else. Uh, That's when peace is found according to the scriptures. And... um, I think that these words seem to be a pretty good summary of what verse uh, of what peace looks like in the church. Peter is calling us really back to the doctrinal foundations that he laid earlier in this letter um, that since 
genuine believers have all been born again to a living hope that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are a a new family that is marked by holy brotherly love. That we aren't just like a family, we are a family because we have been born again. And therefore, he says in chapter 1, verse 22, that we are to take that brotherly love to the next level. We are to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And he goes on to explain uh, why that is, who we are as a church, that we are this supernatural community that God has set apart for Himself. And he says that the purpose of that supernatural community, even existing, is so that we can proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. And and he says that the whole purpose of being a church is so that we can contribute goodness to society and that ultimately God might visit certain people and they might see His glory and worship Him. That's the goal of the church. is the glory of God as we receive His blessing and we become a blessing to the world. You see, this incredible blessing that God has given us as a church isn't merely for the people in the church. It's so that the church will be a witness to the hope of Jesus Christ. It's so that the church will bring glory to God as more people come to worship Jesus as Savior and Lord. We are blessed with unity in the church so that we can be a blessing to the world. And so Peter gives us kind of this profile of a peace-filled church. What what does it look like when a church is filled with peace? And he lists out five descriptive words. Really, in the original language, these are adjectives. They are descriptions of what a peace-filled church looks like. Uh, They aren't actually in command form, uh, and yet we need to be going after them, right? And so a peace-filled church is, first of all, harmonious. Harmonious. The original word for uh, united in mind means harmonious thinking, right? And so if I strum a chord, you hear that? All of those notes, six different individual notes are working together to create a chord. And yet, and yet, if I get just a few notes out of whack, that can go pretty ugly pretty fast, doesn't it? Like, just just keep listening to that and see how you like that, right? Not peaceful at all. Not harmonious at all. And so what I would need to do in order to get that thing back in order is to get out a tuner and, and some outside standard, some other source to retune the guitar to standard perfect pitch. Listen... Jesus is the tuner for the church. Jesus is the guitar tuner for the church. We all need to tune our minds to Him. We need to be united in mind, harmonious in our thinking. If we, if we try to tune our minds to all sorts of different sources, maybe you know what this person says over here and, and what my opinion is over here, what makes me feel good over here, we are not going to be harmonious in thinking. We need to tune our hearts and say, what does Jesus want from our church? 
That's what I'm going after. I don't, I don't care what the latest church growth model says. I don't care what the latest book says. I want, I want this. I want this. And so when we're out of sync with one another, it's, it's not fighting for your rights or my rights. It's what does Jesus have to say? Let's get our minds in tune with Christ. We need to be united in mind. Secondly, Peter says a peace-filled church is sympathetic. Sympathetic. That means that we share in the joys and sorrows of others. We, we seek people out in their emotional situation. And so when someone shows up here on a Sunday morning or in your gospel community, and, and maybe they're like over the moon about something, they're just totally happy, they're totally excited, uh, do you get excited with them? Do you seek to share in their joy with them? Even if like, the thing is not that cool to you. Like, they're, they're excited about a big fish that they caught, and you're just like, I could care less about fish. But you know what? They're excited about it. So like, I'm going to share in their joys with them. On the other hand, maybe, maybe you're the happy one, and, and you see somebody who's acting a little quiet, reserved, sitting off in a corner by themselves. Maybe they've had a bad day. You don't really know. But do you go to them and seek them out? in sympathy and love towards them? Are you in tune with the joys and sorrows of others, or are you just kind of wrapped up in your own little thing? A peace-filled church is sympathetic. Uh, Third, it is loving. It's loving. Peter uses the word for brotherly love. It's, again, a reminder that the church is a family. It's not a business venture. It's not a networking hub. It's not a social club. It's not an entertainment venue. It's a loving family who's been born into a living hope and set apart for God's purposes. This has been a common theme for the last month or so in this study. And so here God is bringing it up for us again. I just have to ask you, have you been pursuing others in genuine, fervent love? Have you been seeking where you can serve them and lay your life down for them and even just getting to truly know them. By the way, if you've been attending here for uh, longer than, say, six months to a year, are there people in this church that you haven't even met that you need to love? That you need to seek out and say, I'm called to love you because we're in the same body of Christ. And so let's just get to know each other a little bit. And you just at least learn their name. Maybe learn a little bit about them. I'm not saying you've got to be besties, but you've got to love them. <coughs> Seek out people who you don't know, who you wouldn't naturally talk to. A peace-filled church is a loving church because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Fourth, it is a compassionate church. Compassionate. The ESV uses the words, a tender-hearted, a tender heart. Really, this is so similar to the word for sympathetic, uh, but whereas sympathetic is about joys and sorrows, uh, tender-hearted is, is, is more about having a place in your heart for the afflicted. The church, your, your gospel community, should not be a place where somebody is carrying their baggage there and then they have to leave it at the doorstep, walk in, put on a smiling face, feel good about everybody being there, and then walk out only to pick that baggage right back up again. Are we creating environments where the afflicted are comforted in their affliction? Where they feel like they can trust 
sharing that affliction. And they're going to be cared for. Do you have a place in your heart for the hurting? A peace-filled church is harmonious, sympathetic, loving, compassionate. Uh, Finally, a peace-filled church is humble. This last quality, really working together with the first quality, is what makes all the other ones work. To be, a hum, to be humble is to count others more important than yourself. Ultimately, it comes from counting Christ as more important than, than everyone. Realizing that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, that we come to Him on the same playing field. Humility requires, then, not fighting for your own way. Humility requires that I'm going to have to admit that I, I need to be wrong. Some, I, I'm wrong sometimes and I need to be requ- corrected. It sometimes requires yielding to others even when I don't agree with that person. Humility requires admitting, um, hey, I was wrong in the way that I handled that. Or, you know what? That was maybe just a little bit of a blind spot. I didn't understand how you were receiving that. Forgive me. Thanks for pointing that out. Humility is sometimes repenting of sin and providing restitution. Humility looks like laying your life down to serve someone else and then sometimes it it means admitting that you're the one that needs to be served. In a church that is harmonious, sympathetic, loving, compassionate, and humble is a church where the peace of Christ rules. And I love that I've seen the peace of Christ rule in our church for many, many years. Uh, not without its little disruptions here and there. Like, we'd be kidding ourselves if we didn't think that the peace just wasn't going to get disrupted every once in a while. But listen, always fighting for these qualities. And, and when we fail, 99.9% of the time being humble enough to admit it. Keep pursuing those things as a church because they're a blessing that Jesus wants to give to His churches. But the question is, the question that we have to ask this morning is why? Why did Peter mention these five qualities in this context? And, and, and why would Christ want to bless a church with peace? And where Peter is going with this is that we're called to bless those who curse and insult us. It's not coming from within the church. The context seems to suggest it's coming from outside of the church. And we need to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us. And so remember the pattern that's in the book. Love in the church leads to proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. Love in the church leads to contributing goodness to our society so that God can be glorified. The blessing of peace in a church is not so that a church can be this happy, tight-knit group of people who only spend time with each other and have a good old time. The blessing of peace in a church is so that we can support one another and show a hostile world what heavenly love looks like. We need each other. There are enough fiery darts flying in the world. We don't need them to be flying inside the church. And so there's this cycle that I've seen in churches in general that that could totally happen in our church if we're not on guard. And so I don't want you thinking necessarily about where you've seen this before, but I want you to be saying, how can I be a guard against this type of cycle, okay? A church starts out with zeal. And they love reaching the lost. And they love each other. And and, um, 
They feel the heat of the battle and find refuge in one another. There's this blessing of peace when they gather that's like unlike anything that they ever, ever encounter in the world. And they're like, these people are great. They love Jesus and, and they love others too. And this is awesome. And it is awesome for a time. But then because the world is so unfriendly, that church starts enjoying its peace so much and they stop going out to bless the world. And they stop welcoming people into their midst because that would kind of disrupt the peace and comfort of the thing that we got going on <coughs> and the people that I feel accustomed to. And, th- and then you know what happens. Uh, this is a slow fade. But they start getting sick of each other. And little disagreements start cropping up and they start to consume the attention that was once focused on worship and mission. And they start to think, you know what, if this is the way that that it's going to be, like, I don't need these people anymore. I don't need this anymore. And they either go on to the next church, only to repeat the same cycle again, or they just stop attending and gathering with God's people altogether. Listen, peace in a church is a blessing intended to bring hope to a hostile world. Peace is not an end in itself. It is a tool for a greater goal. The glory of Christ in the world. Jesus prayed this prayer. He's praying to the Father and He says that they may all be one. He's praying for everybody who would hear the disciples' message. He says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. So He's praying for unity and then He says the purpose statement for that unity, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. A church that gets its eyes on Christ together in worship and experiences unity must then scatter to be a blessing to the world around them. And a church that is scattered all throughout the week, living in the trenches of the battle, must come back together to find peace by focusing their attention on Christ and ministering to one another. A church on mission needs one another desperately and mission strengthens the bonds of love. So are you pursuing and experiencing peace with other believers? And are you using that peace as a platform for mission? Are you coming back together with a a regular group of believers and getting energized for mission once again, only to be sent back out? Are you supporting others and being supported by by others in prayer? Are you helping your fellow brothers and sisters focus on Christ and, and strengthening them in the faith? Can outsiders see the unique love that you have for other believers and say, you know what, there's something different going on there. I want that kind of unity. I want that kind of peace in my life, in my relationships with other people. What is the difference? And you can say, it's Jesus. Peace in the church is a desperately needed blessing that Jesus has given us in order to bless the hostile world around us. And so Peter continues to go on in verse 9. He says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. By using this word evil, it's kind of clear that, that Peter's not talking now about the relationships within the church. He wouldn't be describing the believers as evil. That's a pretty extreme descriptive word there. 
And so his thought has now shifted from the community of believers to the society in which that community is found. And he says, you're going to experience evil that's committed against you. You're going to experience reviling and insults hurled at you. And so don't return in like kind. This reminds us of the example of Jesus that Peter pointed us to in chapter 2, verse 23. You can shift your eyes up there. He says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus, just as he suffered, continued entrusting himself to his heavenly Father, who he trusted to judge justly, to have the final vindication. That was the promise that he was holding on to. And so if we're going to be a blessing in a hostile world, we need to understand this second blessing. It's a promise in our calling. We've been given promise in our calling. Peter says in verse 9, he says, To this you were called. Uh, to what, Peter? To, to what have I been called? To the activity of blessing. I've been called to the activity of blessing. To bless when evil is committed against me. To bless when insults are hurled at me. This is not easy, right? And so students, when, when, when the kids in the lunchroom are, are, are making fun of you for sitting with that person who is less than popular because you know, you're just trying to love on them and follow Jesus' way, you don't return in like kind. Workers, when, when your boss fires you because you wouldn't lie for him, or, or, or when a customer chews you out because you didn't fulfill their dreams. Married people, when, you're, when your spouse keeps sinning against you, even when you're trying to fulfill God's call in your life in marriage, what do you do in that moment? And Peter's answer is simple. His word is bless. Bless. That's the calling for every single follower of Jesus Christ. When you are called to Christ, you are called to follow His example. And His example is the example of patient, long-suffering, grace and love to His enemies, blessing those who afflicted Him. Think about it in your own life. Jesus died for you when you were still a sinner. He took the penalty of your sinful behavior against Him. He, he paid it for Himself. He hung there confident in God's promise to Him and in the calling that God has pl had placed on His life. And He died for you. And if you've been called to Christ, if you, if you say that you're a Christ follower, then you're called to follow in His example of blessing others. You're called to bring His goodness into their life. You're called to be an ambassador of His presence to them. You see this in verse 9. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. You are called. You are, you are blessed to be a blessing. But there's this promise to you. You will receive a blessing for blessing others. You are blessed, you bless others, you receive more blessing to bless others. It's just a cycle that keeps going and going and going. How awesome is that? And so what is this blessing that we can expect? 
an easy life, a lack of opposition, my destiny being fulfilled, fitting in with society. No, Peter just said, uh, what you can expect is evil and insults. That's kind of what you can expect against you. The blessing that we can expect is in line with what Psalm 34 teaches that Peter quotes in verses 10 and 12. 10 to 12. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, here's what he needs to do. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. When we do not return evil for evil, when we do not return reviling for reviling, and we keep our tongue from evil and our lips from lying, when we do good, when we seek peace, we will experience the sustaining blessing of the Lord's care for us and so come to enjoy His design for life and good days. He says, if you really want to enjoy life and and love life and enjoy good days, live righteously toward the people around you. Because, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. That's the source of joy. In other words, he's saying, he's looking out for you. He sees your sufferings. He he sees your needs as you endure evil. He sees the insults of the people around you. And he's hearing the prayers of his saints as they live on the front lines of a hostile world. He's giving you His care and His presence. Understand this. The blessing of God is God Himself. The blessing of God is God Himself. That's the blessing we receive and that's the blessing that we are called to extend to the world around us. Uh, Too often we think of blessing merely as material possessions or physical comfort or apparent success. But here's blessing. Blessing is the presence of God drawing near to those who call upon Him to show them care and give them what they need. And if you have turned from your sin and you put your trust in Jesus Christ, God has given you that blessing and then called you to a life that demonstrates that your life is hidden in Him. That that He is your Savior and your Lord and you are following after Him. And He's promised Himself to you as you walk out that calling. He wants to carry you to... He wants you to carry the blessing of His presence into a hostile world. And so that may look like giving physical help at times and being a blessing in that way. It would probably look like that a lot. But ultimately, the goal is to bring the presence of God into that situation. As you offer the blessing of Christ's hope to a hostile world, He gives you everything that you need. And He protects you in that place. Notice verse 12, He says, For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears toward their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That's vindication. That's that's protection in our convictions. There's the third blessing that we're 
given to bless a hostile world. We're, we're, we're given protection in our convictions. So verse 13 says, Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those that revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter starts out by acknowledging, uh, generally speaking, if you're out to do good for others, if you're out to bless them, most people aren't going to harm you. Most people aren't going to be too opposed to that idea. But even if some do, kind of states that rhetorically, even if some do, the promise of blessing remains. Not everyone is going to see goodness as a blessing. Not everyone is going to thank you for your commitment to Christ. But the blessing of Christ's presence is not threatened in any way by their opposition to you. The the people who oppose Christ's message can inflict great harm on you, but they can't take away your hope. And so Peter says, have no fear of them. Maybe you're like, what does that look like, Peter? That seems a whole lot easier said than done. Like if my boss cuts my pay or fires me because I I choose to bless someone rather than cheat them, what's my family going to do then? Or if my neighbor starts making my life miserable because they misunderstood my kindness in some way and and now I've got to see them every time I walk in the front door. Or what if that bully at school keeps bullying me because I showed him kindness rather than the hatred that he's used to? Have no fear of them. How in the world do we do that? First of all, most of our fears about how people will respond when we seek to bless them are unfounded, especially in our society. Like A lot of the things that we fear, how awkward things are going to get or whatever, a lot of times that's just unfounded. But when we seek to do good to people and love them and then tell them that Jesus is the reason we did it, some people may ignore us. A few people will respond in hostility. But even more than that, uh, we need to understand that, that, no match, that, that they are no match for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. They are no match for the hope of Christ in you. Peter says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. We have to remember that we don't serve men, ultimately. We serve a Savior King who is holy, who is altogether better and different than anything else that we can see in this world. He is pure and powerful and righteous. And we we don't answer to the people of this world. We answer to the hope of heaven. We, We need to set Him apart in our hearts and serve Him only. No one else even comes close to the way that we need to honor Him. And if we do that, it's going to make those people who oppose us mad. Like if they really are are trying to oppose us, usually what they're trying to do is maintain some amount of control in our lives. And and when we don't fear them, but we fear Christ, that kind of only eggs that person on a little bit, right? 
And so they're like, why don't you care what I think? Why aren't you afraid of me? And it's at that point that we're able to give a reason for the hope that's within us. Understand, a lot of the opposition that we face and some of the people that appear to be most hostile to the gospel are actually the greatest opportunities to share the gospel. And with all gentleness and respect, you say to that person, you know what? This is why I'm not afraid of you. Because I have a Savior who is Jesus Christ the Lord. He's unlike anyone that I've ever met. He's perfect in every way. And there was a time when I stood opposed to Him, just like you're standing opposed to me. And there was a time when I tried to fight Him and His good plans in my life, and I was a real jerk to Him. But before that ever happened, He he died for me. While I was His enemy, He suffered for me. And the Holy God of the universe took on human flesh and He died for His enemies. And, and then He rose again and He conquered death and, and He conquered my sin and He conquered me. And He's now my Lord and He's promised to be with me always and to give me everything that I need. And so I answer to Him. That, sir, is why I'm not afraid of you. Because He changed me and I, I stand before Him with a good conscience and And I know that what I've done is good in His eyes, even if it's not good in your eyes. Let me ask you this. Are you convinced of the hope that is in you? In such a way that you could share it like that. It's not complicated. You could totally say that. But you need to be convinced that that is your hope. Do you tend to fear people more or God? By the way, if you need more confidence in that area, we're we're going through this class at 11 o'clock called Threads. And the whole goal of the class is just to build confidence in speaking up about the hope that is within you. To really understand that hope. Because we need to be convinced. We need to share that conviction knowing that we are blessed with the protection of Christ. His, his hope is sure. No one can take it from us. Now, now there's no guarantees that the response coming back to you from that person is going to be favorable. But it may convince someone else around you who's listening. It may convince your kids when you recount the story and tell it to your family. It may convince your coworker as they see you bearing witness to Christ and see your testimony line up with your hope. It may convince a teenager at church who's seeing if they want this Jesus thing for themselves as you share your testimony to the people around you. And ultimately, God is going to vindicate you as the evil persecutor is put to shame. Remember, the face of the Lord is is against those who do evil. And, and so you may suffer for doing good now, but that's sure better than suffering for doing evil on the day of judgment when Jesus returns. And even as we... And that's what the persecutors are going to suffer. And even as we live in a world that is hostile to Christ now, there's coming today, a day when we shall see every enemy brought under His feet. The fourth and final blessing we want to look at is is the one that enables all the rest. 
There's power in our Christ. There's power in our Christ. We do not serve a a Savior who is weak and incapable of protecting us. And we, we also do not serve a Savior who has left us in our evil state. Look at Christ's power in verse 18. This is awesome. You want to see miracles of God? Here it is. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Christ suffered once for sins. Uh, So suffering at the hands of evil men was, was not foreign to Jesus. And it should not surprise us. Paul taught the churches he planted that through many tribulations, they needed to enter the kingdom of heaven. But Christ didn't just suffer at the hands of the unrighteous. He suffered for the unrighteous. I read a quote this week from John MacArthur that said, On the cross... God treated Christ as if He had lived my life of sin so that He could treat me as, I, as if I lived Christ's life of righteousness. So let that sink in for a moment. Don't ever let that truth become old hat. On the cross, God treated Christ as if He had lived my life of sin so that He could treat me as if I had lived Christ's life of righteousness. The righteous Savior standing in the place of the unrighteous sinner. And here's the goal. Let's never forget the goal. That He might bring us to God. That we might encounter the living God together. That's the Gospel. That's the essence of the Christian life. That is the ultimate blessing. Encountering the Holy God through the work of Jesus Christ. He was put to death in the flesh. His his body was broken and His blood was poured out as a sacrifice that paid the price for your sin even when you were an enemy. He was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. The power of Christ overthrew the grave. That's the resurrection power that we were singing about earlier that is alive in us. I have resurrection power living on the inside. And you can have new life in Him if you turn from your sin and you trust in Him today. And listen, you must do that. You must do that. You must not put that off. There is no life. There is no hope apart from Jesus Christ. And you cannot experience any of the blessings that we have talked about today in their totality without first coming to know that you are a sinner in need of a Savior and finding that salvation in Jesus Christ alone. When we humble ourselves before God and say, I have no hope apart from Christ, Christ then becomes our hope. And we receive the power of His resurrection. Now in verse 19, we we see uh, that power fulfilled. Although this is going to get weird for a minute. Look at verse 19. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, 
while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Say, what? Like, why are we talking about Noah all of a sudden? I, I don't understand. And I have to admit, I read a whole lot of pages this week, and I'm still kind of baffled on this one. So, like, if you've read this before and you're confused by it, you're not alone. Scholars are even confused by it. But there are about five primary interpretations. And I've kind of narrowed it down to two that I think are viable. So I'll share those two, and you can go read the other three if you want. Um, But the first is that uh, what, what Peter is saying is that Jesus spoke, the first interpretation is that Jesus spoke through the Holy Spirit, through the voice of Noah, as Noah was building the ark. So, Noah, the herald of righteousness, is preaching and he's saying, Hey, y'all need to repent. Y'all need to repent. Turn from your sin. There's going to be time. There's room on this ark for you. And nobody's listening. And now those spirits of those human beings are in chains. And only Noah and his family trusted in God and were rescued. The emphasis in that view is on God rescuing yet another unrighteous, I'm sorry, yet another righteous sufferer who looked forward to Christ and operated in the power of His Spirit. That's one viable interpretation. The other uh, viable interpretation, again, there's others, but these are the viable two in my opinion, is that this verse is referring to Jesus after He was resurrected, going to the heavenly places and proclaiming not, not salvation, but victory to the spiritual beings, that is demons, who are bound in chains because of the rebellion that they endure, that they went through at the time of Noah. So Jesus, after the resurrection, proclaiming to demons because of their rebellion at the time of Noah. And the emphasis in that view is, is that these spiritual beings were put fully under Christ's feet at the time of His resurrection. That Jesus has absolute authority, absolute power, and while evil might appear to have the upper hand sometimes, Christ is victorious. And so whichever view you take, Peter then continues with another confusing verse in verse 21. (laughs) Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. So you read that baptism saves you. If you've been around a church like ours for any amount of time, you're kind of like, ugh. What are you? Ugh. So what, in what sense does baptism save? That's what we need to ask. In what sense does baptism save? First of all, we have to remember that water baptism is not a saving work. It's an outward sign of an internal reality. Water baptism is this declaration of what was stated earlier, that I have died with Christ according to the flesh, and I've been raised with Him according to the Spirit. It, It corresponds to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, while also corresponding to that internal work of the Holy Spirit in someone's heart. And just like Noah was saved by an ark through the waters of judgment, so we are saved through the body of Christ that was passed through judgment on our behalf. The righteous died for the unrighteous that He might bring us to God. And so water baptism isn't about washing yourself externally. It's about the internal transformation that has taken place. 
It's this declaration that says, I'm no longer bound by sin and darkness. I have died with Christ. I have been raised with Him. He's my Lord. He's the one I honor as holy. He's the one I serve because He's the powerful one who overcame death on my behalf. He was victorious over the enemies that I could not conquer. And He is my hope. That's the internal transformation of heart that is demonstrated in the external transformation of baptism. And by the way, if you've never been baptized and you want to make that declaration that Jesus alone is your salvation and your hope, I want to talk to you after the service today. I want to get, we'll find a time, we'll find a tank, we'll figure it out. And that baptism, that external action, to a degree, but even more the internal transformation that it points to, is an appeal to God. For a good conscience. You can look back at that and say, God changed me. God changed me. I'm no longer who I once was. Sin no longer has dominion over me. I pass from death to life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He is my living hope. His work is in the past and and it's, it's my victory in the present and my hope for the future. Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that I might come to God. That's what I want you to hold on to. And he proclaimed victory to the spirits who were in prison. At this point, I'm favoring that interpretation of the verses that they're angelic spirits because of what Peter says next. Uh, Jesus has been resurrected and has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Suffering led to the hope of glory. That's the pattern for Jesus. Suffering led to the hope of glory. Every angel, every demon, every cosmic power over this present darkness is under the feet of Him who conquered the grave. If you're memorizing the the Ephesians 6 fighter verses, let that sink in right now. He is Lord. He is holy. And He has blessed us to be a blessing. And so who are you called to bless with this hope this week? Is there someone who's been hostile to you regarding your faith? Is there someone who has appeared resistant to Christ? Or you thought, you know what, they're just not going to want to hear about it, I'm just not going to go there. Be a blessing to them. Be an embodiment of God's presence in their life and speak about God like He's with you because He is. Speak about Christ like He's the hope of glory because He is. Maybe you aren't seeing a lot of that hostility because you're not putting yourself out there very much. Jesus said that we will face persecution if in some degree. And so if we're not facing it, maybe we're not standing very well. Whatever the case this week, seek to bless a hostile world with the blessing of the hope you have in Christ. You've been given peace in the church. You've been given a promise in your calling. You've been given protection in your convictions. And you have been given power in your Christ. Father, we 
praise You for the power that is within us through Jesus Christ our Lord. We praise You for the hope that we have in Him. We thank You for all of the spiritual blessings in all the heavenly places that You have given us and that You have stored up for us and the inheritance that we have in Christ to look forward to. And I pray, first of all, that we would be sure of those blessings through faith in Christ. That we would know who our Savior is. That we would know whom we have believed. And would hold fast to our conviction that He is faithful. And be unashamed then to take His blessing into a hostile world. Father, would You show us who You're placing around us that we are to bless. Give us eyes to see the lost. Give us eyes to see those who who need the hope of Jesus Christ. And make us eager and ready to extend and speak of the hope that is found. your authority in our lives. We declare your salvation in our lives. And we worship you because of you are Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.